Now we're going. Scott Powell of the Hill, people. Scott Powell. Nobody. Well, it's fine. I was about to say nobody knows the reference you're making. But there's probably tens of people out there yeah, yeah. that are, recognize it vaguely and don't know why. Well, welcome to the word on the hill. Yes, indeed. Welcome. I'm Father Peter. And I'm Scott Powell. We are the Lanky Guys. <laughs> Great to have you here, everybody. Dude, did I, th- I threw you off. I'm not. I'm perfectly I'm cool as a cucumber. Yeah, that's it. That's Do I seem thrown off to you? Yeah, totally. If this is what I look like thrown off? Uh-huh. I am as... I am Dr. Scott Powell. Boom! Don't you look Throw at me, me with, off. Your, with your thrown off eyes. Dude, well, I just had to say that um, we are the hill people. <laughs> <laughs> Enough. It is the, we are the, well, we already said who we are. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm just, I see you are thrown off. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm t- yeah, that, you know, that, that, that used to be my entire job for yes, the podcast. You made it clear. You said it every week. I know. Thanks, man. I'm just bringing us back to our roots, dude. Sometimes you said your goal was to make me try to edit as much as possible. <laughs> That's always fun. That is always fun. Well, oh my gosh, you guys! It's the third Sunday of Lent already. We're already we're, we're already we're, there. We're already in debt. Okay. <laughs> it's getting funnier because we got Lent. Yeah, I got, I got you. I'm with you. <laughs> what do we have here? Four more weeks of Lent? Five yeah. more weeks. Jeez, Lent is long. Yeah, dude, Lent is forever, dude. You can tell, I think that you can more. You can read it by the cosmos. So what's going to happen <laughs> is that um, we just saw a full moon. Okay. So now what's going to happen? Um, what are you talking about? Humanity. Oh. The whole of the earth. Okay. Wh- okay. Okay. Continue. Have you, have, wanna... you not, have you not been paying attention yeah, to the, the celestial reality? Yeah, I've seen the full moon. I just don't know what you're talking about. So yes, we've all seen the full moon. Yeah. Now continue. It's, now it's going to wax. No, it's going to wane. Wanes. It's going to wane. Yeah. Um, Wayne's world. Wayne's world. So it's going to be. <laughs> it's going to be waning, uh-huh. and then um, and then uh, then it'll start waxing again, and then we're going to have a Paschal moon, and then we'll have Easter. Neat. Do you have the book What to Expect When You're Expecting? On your no, show? I do not have that. I do have that. It was it was like, well, <laughs> it, was totally a, it was one of those like white apple. One elephants. of these <laughs> things is not like the yeah, other. Yeah. What's the, What's the book next to it? <laughs> um, Cat be good. <laughs> Dude, yeah, that's the miscellaneous shelf <laughs> over there. <laughs> oh. uh, well, you guys, the third Sunday event of Lent. And, the Thursday. My goodness, you're giddy today. You're you're giddy. Thanks, man. Thanks. Our first reading. Do you have any shout outs? Anything dude, we need to any business we need to cover? Dude, I'm just like, I want to shout out the Falls family. Oh, the Falls family. Yeah, just like down yes. into the springs. They're um Absolutely. And um their their priest, um, God rest his soul, just passed away. He was oh, a pro yes. life champion. Oh yeah. Big hero. Yep. So yeah. God rest his soul, and uh, yes. and uh, I just talked to Jeff today, so I was just sending the love his way. Absolutely, I'm going to give a shout out to the Baker family. I don't know if they listen or not, but the Bakers in Denver, who are an awesome Catholic family, and also the Camboytiwa team asked me uh, for a shout out, so I give a shout out to the whole Camboytiwa year-round staff. It's and also, Bible time mm, with the Bible guy. Absolutely. And a word for all of you listeners on the Hill. I know a lot of you are university and college students. Uh, we still have a couple spots open for our summer, our, our servant leadership program, our summer counselor staff. So if you were so inclined, you might want to hurry up and get your application in there because we have a couple spots open. 
So I have done my due diligence. You're welcome, Emily Buss. Let's move on to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, our first reading today is from Exodus <laughs> Movement Aja People, do, chapter do, do, do. <laughs> 3, verses 1, 8a to 13, 15. Our psalm is from Psalm 103, verses 1 through 2, 3 through 4, 6 through 7, 8 and 11. Our second reading. <laughs> Keep it up. Keep going. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 6, skip a couple, 10 through 12. Yeah, you bet. Did, did you read the skip a couple? I, I Yes, I read, I read all. I read everything. I read everything. Well, yeah, the skip a couple, I want to talk about the skip a couple. Boom, let's talk about the skip a couple. Our gospel is coming from Luke chapter 13, one of the weirdest chapters in Luke, <laughs> verses 1 through 9. Dude, yeah, no... <laughs> No kimchi on that one, dude. What? No kimchi. What does that mean? Kimchi is, is that a, a kind of sushi. It's a it's like a cabbage buried in the ground, according <laughs> to a Korean recipe. All right. Well, fair enough. Um, I got to give a shout out to a book that I so this morning as I was going through the readings. Oh man, oh man, it's Exodus, which is Exodus is a heck of a good book. It yeah, Exodus. It's not just a good book, Father Peter. It is the pinnacle story for Israel, for the Jewish people. This is the pinnacle moment of God's salvation in their story of salvation. This is it. So this is, um, as, as Christians have the Christ story as the pinnacle moment of God's saving work, for the Jewish people, the Exodus story is it. If this is it, oh my please let me know. Na, 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 na. So um, why, why did I bring that up? Because, because we're talking about the Exodus. Well, anyway. I mean, if, if, if that's the pinnacle, if the Exodus is the pinnacle, this might be the pinnacle of the Exodus itself. Um, not really. That's no. giving it a law on Mount Sinai. Uh, yeah. Or Mount Horeb, depending on... It's the same thing. It's the same mountain. Dude, this is... Okay, dude. Okay, let's not get you, ahead of ourselves. I'm not getting ahead You're of anybody. You're getting way ahead of everybody. Dude, come on, Mr. Context. Hit me up then. All I want to say is I want to give a shout out to one of my... I So, uh, again, book. I was studying this. Book, book shout out. It's one of those books that I pulled off the shelf and I'm like, oh, we're in Exodus. Let me see what Joran Larson has to say. And you know you have those books that you forget how much you love them? Do you, mm, do you have those I or do. those things? No, no, I movies do. or whatever it is. But I p- picked up this book and I was like, <laughs> "Are you I... saying that I only watch movies? Is that what you're trying to say, dude? Uh, come on, I have what to expect when you're expecting, dude. I read books. <laughs> you do. It's right near. Oh, it's right near your headfirst guide to HTML coding, <laughs> dude. It is the miscellaneous shelf. Okay, here. tell me about this book that you're okay. giving a shout out. Oh man, Joran Larson. I, I I hope it's still in print. Uh, it's called Bound for Freedom. Bound for Freedom. The guy is Joran Larson. Joran Larson is, he's actually a Lutheran, although uh, I wonder if he's going to be Catholic anytime soon. Anyway, he's a Lutheran. He teaches at um, Hebrew University, I believe. Yeah, he's he teaches in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Center for Biblical Studies. Um, we brought him out when I worked at the biblical school. We brought him to, to give a, a, a conference. He's spectacular. And what this book is doing is looking at the Exodus from um, the Jewish tradition that surrounds it and then connecting it to the Christian traditions. Cool. And really connecting the dots and unpacking what is going on, what this means for the Jews, for the rabbis, how that connects what the typology is with with uh, with Jesus and with Christianity. And I just and he is a good man. He's one of the best holiest men that I've ever met. Did you um, sp- but this did book you, is fantastic. Does he spell his name with a J or a Y? A G, in fact. And an umlaut. Uren. Uren. Uren Larson. G Umlaut O R A N. R A N. I can put a, I'll see if Amazon has this. I'll put a link on our website. 
or oh, on the Facebook dude, site because it's we, such we, a good book. We could call this um, Exodus. You're in luck. <laughs> God, what do I say about how, how do, what's the on ramp in here? So we know the story, right? Israel is in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years because of the story of Joe. Remember Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. God works in his favor. He raises, rises in the ranks in Egypt. His family is facing a famine. They come, he saves them. You know, they, they, the family all moves to Egypt. You know, we know the story. And and then Israel starts to actually grow and multiply and they're strong and they're loving it. And then you have, then you've got a Pharaoh exchange. Freaked out. And then the new Pharaoh comes in, doesn't know anything really that's going on or he does. And he He knows exactly what's going on. And, and he gets, he gets fearful of the Israelites and then starts to, come down on them. Yeah. Moses says, let my people go. We have a plague. Hasn't happened yet. Dang it. I'm just trying to catch this up to where you're getting ahead of ourselves again. Uh, man, why am I so ahead of myself? Because it's exciting. It's an exciting okay, narrative. Dude, because I'm in luck. No, so we're... <laughs> Seriously. Anyway, great story. But Moses grows up. He eventually realizes his people are being oppressed. He knows he's a Hebrew. Sees his people oppressed. Acts on their behalf. He actually kills an uh, Egyptian soldier who's abusing and beating a Hebrew and because he's committed a capital crime, Moses has to flee away from Egypt. He's gone now. And Bailed. he spends a number of years, I, I want to say it's 40 years, out in the wilderness shepherding flocks. He meets a guy named Jethro, this priest of Midian, marries his daughter, and he lives this you know relatively happy life shepherding out in the wilderness. He does this because he had to flee because they would take his life for committing a capital crime. Um, there comes this moment where, like you kind of alluded to before, the, the pharaoh dies— um, a new pharaoh comes to power, and because when a new king comes to power, it's sort of like what we think of as the jubilee. There's a wiping away of debts, a wiping away of you know crimes over people's heads, things like this. A number of pardons happen, so Moses can actually go back, and that's the moment that God chooses to say, "Okay, now it's the time for my people to be released from slavery." Right. And he introduces himself to Moses, and Moses is like, "That's wonderful, great God, this is super." And he's like, "But you're going to be the God, to, the guy to do it." So it's this moment when Moses is out, he's shepherding his flock. He's sheeps and goats. Sheeps and goats and which, such. Which, which the Hebrew says sheeps and goats, which I actually think is a really important point. Mm. How come? Because sheeps and goats are an important image that we uh, oh, have. Oh, the, the sheep Testament. and the goats. Yeah, yeah, like like that he's he's shepherding them and then there's an encounter. The sheeps and the goats both encounter. Encuentro. Encuentro. Um, this is cool. Mm. Like if you've ever watched the movie Exodus. Um, the, uh, the, the What movie? Exodus. The okay. uh, the one that has Christian Bale as uh-huh. as Moses. Oh yes, right. Yeah, the reason why he sees the burning bush is because he got hit in the head with a rock, and so it's actually really? yeah yeah it's horrible. It's like it's like terrible. God's a petulant horrible. child. Horrible. Horrible. Ah. ah! Ha ha. Okay. Uh, so so no, something we have to. Oh please. So um, yeah. Okay, you go ahead. Well, I just have to point out that he's in the desert, or the properly speaking, it's the wilderness, is what it says. And the wilderness, is it's a huge theme throughout the whole Bible. God often will speak to people in the wilderness. Right. But I, again, I was digging out my notes on Exodus. There was something I forgot about with the wilderness. The word in Hebrew for wilderness is the word middabar or middabar. Middabar. <laughs> I don't think I'm pronouncing it right. Middabar, M-I-D-B-A-R, middabar. Um, and the word for speech is dabar. So the word speech and the word wilderness are almost identical. Speech and wilderness are identical, which is not just ironic. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's so profound. Hamidbar. Yeah. Hamidbar, the, the desert. He came to Hamidbar. Yeah. 
Well, he is the 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 uh, he, article. He midbar. It's the article, but yeah. So I mean, there's something so profound both about the biblical story and just the spiritual life that God often chooses the desert places, the wilderness, to speak to us. So, mm. uh, as a teacher of mine once said, Moses's location is his vocation. Where he is speaks to what God is going to do in him and through him and to him. Right? God is speaking to him in the wilderness. He's debarring in the mid debar. I know. I, I just thought it was a really neat point. Um, and you know, this is why we go on silent retreats and stuff because we know that in those kind of silent desert places, that's where God speaks. So, and that's that's what happened to me when I was in high school. I started listening to DeBarge, and like it <laughs> okay. really, you know, all right, it all right, it happened right. for me. So yeah, he comes to Mount Horeb. Horeb. Um, by the way, means literally dryness. So it's the dry mountain he comes to. It'll be changed to Sinai later, and the Bible uses it interchangeably, Horeb and Sinai. Sinai comes from Sena, which means burning. And oh. it's renamed, essentially, because there's this burning bush. Oh, I did. I was wondering about this shift. I wanted to ask you about that, so thank you for explaining it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it doesn't mean burning. It means bush. Sena. Sena. It means bush. But again, it's named for the same reason, yeah. because of this this thing that happened there. But yeah, the Bible kind of goes back and forth. But he comes to this mountain, Horeb, and there an angel of the Lord appears to Mo- appeared to Moses in fire, flaming out of a bush. Um, the burning bush. So many things that we could say about this. He looks on, he's surprised to see the bush, though it was on fire, it wasn't consumed. The burning bush, walking through the desert, especially in this part of the world, seeing a bush on fire is an incredibly common thing. It happened all the time. Bushes would just catch fire because the region is actually very sulfuric and some of the minerals that are around and this extreme heat. Sometimes there's heat lightning. Anyway, there's lots of reasons that bushes would just burn. Oh. But, so finding a bush that's on fire isn't that big of an issue, but bushes that catch on fire, they just disintegrate and they turn to ash and they fall. This one is burning, but what? It's not, not consumed. Not being consumed, yeah. right? Which is, I mean, we, we know the imagery here of, you know, this is the this is supposedly the life of the Christian, of the follower of God, who is consumed. God is called an all-consuming fire, but he's not the kind of fire that destroys. He's the kind of fire that consumes, that purifies, that heats, but it doesn't destroy. And that's what's being embodied in this uh, and, and, bush. And, and I think that for, for the points that uh, I want to try to make today, um, is that I think it's very important that he turns aside. Well... Yeah, that 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 action is that verb and the manner in okay. which because he has another goal, he has something else that he's doing in the wilderness of Horeb, rather than that, and he turns aside to go and encounter that. And I think that that's that that verb is essential. He doesn't just turn aside. What else does he do? And see, um, this great sight. Yeah, but but then what? Oh, so you're thinking the turn? I must go over and look at. I must I, turn. I will turn, turn to, aside. Oh, okay. I will, I will turn. And go and see this great sight. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, I thought you were headed someplace else. No, okay, no. Okay, that's huge. He also has to take his shoes, sandals off. Yeah, which is, that. that's where I was, because he kind of, he kind of, he doesn't hide his face at this point. He does later on in Exodus. But right. he does take off his shoes, which, uh, so there's, and God actually gives him a warning in, right? In chapter three, verse five, come no closer, right? Because, uh, and that, that theme is actually going to repeat itself, especially in the book of Exodus. Turn aside, you're not going to be able to see. And, and it's repeated again. Well, the, the reaction to it, again, we talked about Isaiah a couple weeks ago, right? When he realizes he's in the presence of God and he real, recognizes his own humility and his own inability to be there, right? It's the same theme that keeps happening throughout the Bible when someone finds themselves in God's presence. But um, it's also this reminder of God's holiness, 
And Joran Larson in this book I mentioned, he says, the closer we come to the Lord, the more we experience the huge distance between ourselves and God. The closer we get to God, the, re- mm. the more we realize actually how much greater God actually is. We realize how small and impure we are. And, you know, across cultures, so many cultures, removing footwear, right? Removing your shoes, symbolize, well, shoes or footwear implies power and uh, impurity. Power and impurity. Impurity? Impurity. Why is that? I don't know, but a lot of cultures... The shoes, I think it's part of a practical reason. Like they pick up all the gunk from the street and there's stuff and then they're dirty and they just carry with them all of the stuff that you kind of walk through. So that's actually pretty normal for the Japanese culture, for a lot of people. Islamic culture, for Japanese culture, for, um, well, in the Jewish culture, which is the other one I was going to, because in the same way that Moses takes off his shoes, because again, those are the two things we have to strip ourselves of before God's presence, our own power and our own impurity. That's what needs to be taken off before we go to God's presence. So while all sorts of cultures have this imagery in the temple, when the priests were to go into the temple, they all had to remove their shoes. No priests were allowed to wear shoes in the Jerusalem temple. Because the idea was we were before God's presence. It's like Moses before the burning bush. And as Moses entered before God's presence, he had to remove his shoes. So too, every Levitical priest had to remove their shoes before they went in there. Oh, wow. It's like shoeless Joe Jackson up in here all (laughs) over the place. It was, yeah. And in the synagogue, oftentimes, there's certain, this isn't held as much today, but in certain synagogues and certain sects of Judaism around the world, this is still practiced, and, and participants are barefoot during the whole service. Not across Judaism, yeah. but it's still present in some places. What's important for what I'm going to bring up later is that it was very important in the temple because that's where God's presence literally was, to so take off your shoes. Right? Dude, I, yeah, I, this is so cool because I was trying to study shoes, and I was looking at biblical references and, mm. and like how Israel didn't have their shoes fall off the whole time that they were in the wandering in the wilderness. The, 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 your shoes will not rot or fall Oh, yeah, 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 right, right. That's yeah. yeah. And like there, there was just, there's just like a bunch of things, and then you have Jesus who, um, you know, uh, th- this actually is a huge and very important connection. Um, John the Baptist says, I am not fit to uh, remove the shoes of the one who is coming after me. Untie your sandal straps. Exactly. Untie the sandals. Yeah. Oh, shoes. And and that that connection, I think, is actually really important because if you look, what is the moment that Christ goes into? He goes into the desert. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. The place of speaking. The place of speaking. Yeah. And and yet John the Baptist says that... I wonder if Jesus was baptized with his sandals on or off. off. I think he would have taken them off. Off, almost certainly off. Yeah, because leather gets yeah. funky in yeah, water. Yeah, it'll get funky into water. The other images, so there's the shoe imagery. The, so so we have a few images so far, right? The turning toward, right? Okay. That you brought up, right? Yep, yeah, absolutely. The removal of shoes, the yep. sort of humility. Um, the other one I want to talk about is fire. That was me. The other one I want to talk about is the fire. Mm. Um, and, well, not even just the fire. The fire is a part of it. I mean, so fire obviously appears all, all, all sorts of other places. Fire. Um, fire consumes Mount Sinai later fire on. on the, the, the pillar of fire leads them through the desert later on. God, mm-hmm. Fire shows up for God's presence all sorts of places. But there, so the, the again, I, I go back to Joran Larson. He brings up this question that the rabbis always used to ask as to why this is the first time that God's really revealing himself in a, in a profound way. Like he spoke to Abraham and to others, but this is when he really reveals himself. He gives his name at this moment. Says, which is, I which, am, which is, I am who am, which yep. is actually very important to coming from the Egyptian culture. 
which you had uh, the, the true priests, which knew the names of the gods. Oh. And so they knew the true names of gods of which they could pronounce the, the, the like Ra and all those sorts of gods that were around. Those were the popularized names because name yeah. implies having authority over someone. You can see this in the... the um, and relationship. And relationship. If you can name something, yes. then you have some level of power and authority there. Yeah, that's and, true. And yep. so the two priests right. would have the true names of God. And so... What's happening is that culturally, he's getting an experience of what the true name of God is. Who do I say? Yeah. And he says, I'm going to tell you what the true name of God is because I can call upon it like your priesthood. Yes. But better than your priesthood, suckers. Well, right. And that's what he's going to face off later on as. But it still raises the question. Well, so yeah. So the name of God is going to be huge. But why Why a burning bush? So, the, I mean, this is God's huge revelation you know, when the rabbis say, why did God not choose another place? For example, from the peaks of the mountains, uh, from the elevations of the world, from the cedars of Lebanon, to sh- something that would show forth his power, his greatness, his grandeur. I mean, you know, you look at the at, further on in the Exodus story, up on Mount Sinai, there's lightning and thunder and a mountain consumed in fire. You're like, that's God. This is a little pathetic bush that's on fire. And I mean, the rabbis and, and were like, why are, that? A dime a dozen. Bushes are a dime a dozen. Here's a burning one. It's probably, you know, I, why that? Yeah. And um, this is in the Genesis Rabbah. This is in the, the Midrash, the, the commentary that the rabbis gave on the scriptures. And mm-hmm. what they said was this, uh, this love, this empathy and total identification with an afflicted people is expressed in God's choosing a bush as his place for revelation. God said to Moses, do you not realize that I live in trouble just as Israel lives in trouble? Know from the place whence I speak unto you from a thorn bush that I am, as it were, a partner in their trouble. Whoa. God enters into trouble, into burning, into thorniness, into the very suffering that his people are undergoing, which... Again, you look back on that from a Christian point of view, and you're like, "Oh my goodness!" You have the crown of thorns. That you is have huge. The, you have the sin of Adam, but from which the thorns and the bristles come forth, yes. and and how the work that's done doesn't actually bring forth the proper fruit at the proper time. And it's also something that's in the process of suffering. I know the bush isn't consumed; it's not being destroyed, but it's hot. That's got, I mean, it's brutal. It's in. It's on fire. Literally, this is a suffering. Or at least a demonstration of suffering. It was sharing in that. Dude, that's really I, beautiful. I, my mind was kind of blown when I read that because I'd never heard that before. Because, yeah, why burn it? That's a weird image for it's God a, to choose. Why a, that? Yeah, it's a very humble. You could do it's a very set, humble. You could do anything, but it's also relatable. It's on a human scale. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not it, it, it's not nowhere near out of a human scale and thorns and thistles and the curses. And that in a certain sense, if you look at it that way, you can see this like foreshadowing of Christ actually taking the thorns and thistles that even at the heart, God is going to identify with the suffering of his people. Yeah. Other, other fathers of the church have actually related it to Mary in her own lowliness, in her poverty. God chooses to dwell within her. Wow. And even when she says in the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Yeah, and She is the bush that's consumed but but not destroyed. Yeah, consumed but not in destroyed. In her lowliness. Yeah, it, it's just, there's so many, oh, there's just so much that you can go with there. And then, of course, you have the revelation of his name, which you mentioned. And, and the other thing about the name, you know, it does give a, a certain authority over something. It also, especially in the ancient Near East, a, a, a name often expressed the uh, character of the mission of the bearer, right? Yes. So remember we talked about Abram last week, the father of all nations, Jacob, Moses, right? 
Um, and again, Joran Larson, he says the prohibition against... So remember, the Jews couldn't say this name. And even when the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, what he declares to Moses here at the bush, when that's used later on in the Old Testament, the Jewish people would never say that name. And in most of our translations, you see that it doesn't say Yahweh, it says Adonai or Kurios in the Greek. It says Lord because you didn't... And even today, this I find this fascinating. You know, we're given the consonants, Y-H-W-H. Nobody knows exactly how to pronounce it. There is no tradition that is actually held the correct pronunciation of that, which is why some people say Jehovah, some people say Yahweh. There's all sorts of derivatives in other people's names. Yeshua is a derivative. Elijah was a derivative. But we don't know exactly how that name was supposed to be pronounced or how it was ever pronounced or if it was actually pronounced. So every t- every every set of vowels we try to put with YHWH is just a guess at what that actually sounds like. And the Catholic Church actually put a um, put a, uh, a refusal to yes. be able to say that, especially in our yes. singing. Yes, which is so, good. So we're not we're not actually supposed to have songs that like the Yahweh, I know you are with me. me. Like we're not allowed yeah. to do those songs precisely to be, because of which is the sacredness of, of how that name is held. Well, and again, what Joran Larson says, again, a name is a revelation. So God is really revealing something to us. So the, the, the comeback might be, well, wait a second. If God revealed it to us, it's not, yes, it's sacred, but you can't say you can't use it. I mean, it's like, you know, they weren't allowed to, to have pictures or, or icons or, or images of God in the Old Testament. But then God actually took on human flesh and blood and made himself, you know, drawable. And, and Second Council of Nicaea, yeah, exactly. Right. So you're like, well, does the prohibition of God's name hold anymore? Because God told us. So how can we not use it if he told us what it is? And Joran Larson, he says, the prohibition against pronouncing God's name is founded on the humble realization that a human being can only partially grasp God's essence and his plans. So if a name reveals the character or the mission of the person who holds the name, yeah. given being given the name Yahweh only reveals part of it to us. So we can see it. We can write it. We can look at it. We can't say it because we're only partway there. We don't have the full authority over that name. It's not ours to throw around and use how we want to. There's a great power that we can't grasp in that, which, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought that was a fascinating and he also notes that um, We're giving the fathers there, oh, nice. but giving the name um, it's it's smashed in the middle if you look at the story and, and our readings jump a little bit but if you look at how Moses is given this name it's sandwiched right between God saying I'm the God of your fathers of Abraham of Isaac of Jacob linking himself with the story with the narrative with the family tree this is who I am and then right after he reveals the name, he says, I will be with you in his vocation. So what do we know about God? We know that he is the God of history, and we know that he is the God of the future. He is the God who has been with our family, and he is the God who will, who will provide for us and guide us into the future. That's what we know. And so when the, word, when, the, when the name is actually given, what can we know? Well, what we can, we know, about, what we can know about God is is in that sandwich that he gives us. Yes. Here's who I was. Here's who I've been with. Here's what I'm going to do in the future. But that's a part of the picture. You don't know God in his fullness because he is. He wasn't, he was, or he's going to be, but he is the constant present tense. All of it. Which, yeah, so much more we could say about that. That is a theological beauty. A beauty, eh? That's why we should uh, hit some 103. We should go, we should move on. Yeah, that's a lot. But well, it's I mean, good. It's, 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 it's foundational. It's so important. 
It is. So Psalm 103, the Lord is kind and merciful. Interestingly, with you know what, what we just said about the first reading about what does this name reveal? Well, God points to the historical circumstances, what he has done, what he will do in the future. And that's exactly what Psalm 103 is doing. It's pointing out, it kind of goes through. I mean, look at the third stanza, is it? Um, the Lord secures... Um, the Lord secures justice and the rights of all the oppressed. He has made his known. His, he has made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the children of Israel. It's a recounting of salvation history and the ways that God has taken care of us. So, in echoing what the first reading has done, now the Psalm reminds us: Oh yeah, don't forget all of these ways God has revealed Himself, how He's been faithful, how He's been merciful, how. His desire is always for you when you're oppressed. Well, you at all times, but especially the oppressed, you know, the preferential option for the poor. He wants the suffering and he wants to take that on himself and he wants to walk with us. And um, these tend to be the key moments that he reveals something profound about himself. It's not that God's not present in the good times and in the glory days, but he tends to reveal profound things about himself in those moments of deep suffering. Yes. And that's what the psalm is speaking to. And I think that sets us up especially for the gospel. Yes, and uh, so, but, but before that, up for, for Corinthians. Oh, you bet. Which it, it's really it's really cool is uh, the recitation of what God has done is like is like the homily of Saint Stephen. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. Like and and the Exodus and the removing of shoes and like the whole the whole kit and caboodle. It's actually it's actually kind of what we're doing here as we just recite like. That, that's really what the process of the Lanky guys is, is to just recognize and recite the covenant over and over and over again. Yeah. And with, with a, with a view to making a lot of heartburn. Oh, uh, well, well done. Yeah, I see, see what you did. I see how that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Scott Hahn. Thanks, dude. You know, I've been practicing. Well, here's what I, here's what I take from first Corinthians 10. Um, I mean, there's, there's obviously a context to this. In, in the letter itself. And it's the context is, a, I'm not to get into the nitty gritty. This chapters eight through 10 of 1 Corinthians are all about meat eating. And these Corinthians who basically are going to these pagan temples and like, hey, we can do whatever we want to. We can eat this meat sacrificed to idols. We can participate in the pagan ceremonies because, hey, we know better. We know that there's one true God. This, all, this stuff is all baloney. So we can kind of, we can keep our friendships and keep our social lives and go to the pagan temples and everything because we know that there's something better. And which, what, which which is interesting, if you notice, First Corinthians goes one through six, and then jumps to ten through twelve. Yeah, and, and it gets a little ugly in there. Seven, eight, and nine are are um, porneo, like uh, porneomen, yeah, and epuporneosan, which uh, has has at its core something which uh, sometimes is is translated as to rise up to dance, <laughs> which is such a, such yeah. a like a such a covering over of what's actually taking place. And well, porneo is a pretty broad thing yes as you can imagine (laughs) but the point of this the reason this this is important is that the 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 corinthians it seems they want to profess jesus and they want to be christians and believers but they also want to kind of live however they want to well they They want want to be part of the culture i mean like this is the thing is that everybody around them is going to the local restaurants and and the restaurant life is tied up with a a, a, a occultic pagan ritual life which includes these aspects, which right. is what people were doing for entertainment at the time. So what Paul is saying is, yeah, you're right. These gods are not real. You know better. That's that's true. The pagan ceremonies are, are they're shams, basically, is what these people are saying. But Paul's like, that's fine, but it's not taking into consideration what are people going to think when they see you going to these things. Right. That's great if they're not, if there's not really a god Apollos that you're offering a go to, but 
does it matter when there's this young believer or someone who's weak in their faith that sees you going to this and is thinking, oh, maybe that is okay. Maybe that is good. That's the definition of scandal. Absolutely. Which means giving somebody else the permission to do a sin that exactly. may or may not be a sin for you, but but they but they exactly. see it in, the, in that way. And, and so he's saying you need to con- take into consideration how you're how you're living in the world and how, how you know and he, he goes so far as to say you know are, are what are you willing to sacrifice for this person for whom Christ died just in case you missed that Christ gave up everything and you're not willing to give up your social life and this is this is kind of the theme of this chapter he ends that whole chapter though with what we're about to with do what here, we're about to do here. Which, which is saying which is go into the wilderness Look, look, like, look at this. It says, okay, yeah. you know what I mean? Our fathers are under the cloud and they passed through the sea and were baptized Moses in the sea. And they drank from the supernatural rock. Where is that? Where is the supernatural rock? The rock that followed them in the desert. Yeah. This, this place of speaking is, is actually happening Wouldn't that have been weird? Forsaken. Just a rock rolling after them. Do you, what do you think that looked like? Um, here comes that rocket. Here comes that creepy rocket. Hey, Rocky, Rocky, dude. I don't know. I, I, I've been. Do you think s- it rolled or floated? Shut up. I have no I'm idea. Curious. I no. I think that or it just appeared. No, I think that rock that, again. I think that Moses, having spent all that time shepherding in the desert, understood the way in which. Um, I'm not trying wells, to make light of it. Wells happened, and that he he knew how to actually go to rock. Because what did he do? He hit the rock. Mm. He knew that there was water underneath certain ones. <clears throat> right, no, and you're right. Th- th- and there's times in the Lord, th- and th- the request for Moses and his fidelity is to speak the rock, not hit the rock, because yeah. yeah, he'd yeah, be yeah, used yeah. to hitting the rock. And so, so, th- yeah. so it's it's like the the rock was found all over the place. I think it was spoken of as, I don't know, like a wells that were underneath things. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I actually makes a lot of sense. I actually think that there's there's a little bit of a technical explanation that was um um uh, sister yeah. um oh not Judith uh, sister Prudence. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, sorry about that. No, it's okay. What did she say? She that, said she pointed that, to this. Yeah, th- this idea that actually like water would flow in in, in gaps, in particular rocks, and that, that you could actually that it was weakened through the lattice structure of how the walk, water was penetrating in the desert, and that it'd be <clears throat> accessible to somebody who knew over forty years yeah, how to get yeah. water in the desert for yeah. their for their sheepies. Oh, that's cool. And their goats. That's very cool. I actually think it's darker reading than that. I mean, yes, there there is a re, return to this, revisit this. See, I think the whole schema of the readings is going from really good news to really bad news, and it's 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 making a pretty direct line from those because what I think Paul is saying to the Corinthians, again, who are taking this sort of liberty in their faith, like we have we're free to go to the things because of Jesus Christ, and we know better, and we know the one true God is da da da, even though we're not considerate of my brothers and sisters and people who are watching us. And then he throws this out, which doesn't seem like it fits. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, by the way, notice he is applying the Jewish ancestry directly to Gentile Christians, to non-Jewish people. Right. Saying, no, their history literally is your history. He says, all of our ancestors were under the cloud. They passed through the sea and all of them were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. So, you know, of course, we're talking about the Exodus. They're, they're um, under the cloud, the pillar of smoke, right? The pillar of fire that we talked about. They passed through the Red Sea with Moses. Yeah, the movements of Yahweh's people. Yep, absolutely. The, they ate the supernatural food. That's the manna, the same supernatural drink. Like you said, this water that followed them, the rock was Christ. So what's the, what's the most recurring word in those first few lines? There's one word that appears more than any other word. All? All. 
They all went through the water. They all saw the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all ate the manna. They all drank the water. And but then and, he shifts. Well, and, and this is where he's actually talking about, you know, this section of you can't just go and scandalize other people, that you are a real collective. Right. But what does he get? What's the next word? He says, but most of them didn't make it. And that's the, is that in here? No. With most of them, yeah. God was not God pleased. God was not pleased. Because how many people from that generation, the, the generation that ate the manna falling from heaven, that passed through the Red Sea, miraculously, that saw the Egyptians obliterated behind them, how many of that generation actually made it to the promised land? None. Two. Two. Oh, yeah. Joshua Caleb and Caleb. And, yeah. With mo- they all saw it. They all participated. They all ate the supernatural food. They all drank the drink. They were all baptized in the sense, but most of them, most of them by far, didn't get to the promised land. Basically, what he's saying is, I think, and this is pretty harsh words, just paying it all lip service doesn't actually make you a Christian. <laughs> well, it doesn't, it doesn't save you. That's actually not all there is. Just going to Mass on Sunday, just showing up, receiving the Eucharist, saying the prayers, that's actually not it. That's great that you're baptized. That's great that you're receiving the Eucharist. Those are the means of salvation. That is it. Yeah. But unless you cooperate, unless you respond to what you've received, you're going to be like your ancestors in the desert. Most of them didn't make it. Well, And that's why I'm a little sad that we took out 7, 8, and 9 out of this yeah. set. Because what happens is that the, the 7, 8, and 9 link us back into what happens at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses oh, receives yeah, 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 the yeah, law. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's it's right. the same pattern that, that the, he's actually making the real connection of what's yes. happening at Sinai, that you're receiving the new law, you're yes. receiving the new grace, you're receiving this new disposition as a people. Yeah. But but what happened is 29,000 were lost that day, he says in, this, in those passages, yes. because of the way in which they were involved in the same kind of temple worship that yeah. the Egyptians yeah seduced Israel into absolutely so it's a warning that just I mean and again you're reading through these readings you know Moses is like what's your name I want to tell everybody they should be told these things the psalm is like remember don't forget you've been a part of this but then there's this level of okay you've heard the name of God you've seen what he's done you've walked with it now what Right. What's your response to that? Because if it's to do nothing but please yourself and fill your bellies and scandalize your neighbors, guess what? You might end up like the generation of the Exodus who saw these things, who walked with these things, who knew the name of God. And it's it's a pretty severe warning. Which I think for is for good reason. Yeah, which I think is perfect for us to actually be able to enter into this gospel. To the gospel. It's also perfect for our times, quite frankly. Uh, oh, but, yeah. No, it it, it is. And he says, let these things be examples to us so yeah. that we may not do the evil things that they did, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it speaks to our times profoundly. Let, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Yeah. He's like, he's like, um, which the, I think it's important that we're talking about turning aside. Yes. The collective itself. Yes. The uh, Israel actually being united. And now we get into this moment where Jesus starts to talk to us. Well, but back, last part on 1 Corinthians, what does shoes represent? Power and impurity. What are the Corinthians falling into? This false sense of power because we know better and their impurity. They're not taking off their shoes where it says you're standing where you should be falling. Or What, what, what is it saying? What did you just say? It says, um, um, it says uh, therefore, anyone who thinks that he stands, yeah. take heed lest he fall. How are you standing? Are you standing like Moses with your shoes off, off in humility before God? 
are you standing in your own power and authority before these things? I think that the imagery is, Ooh, is huge. Yeah. Huge. So we get into Luke 13, which is really which is kind of, weird, which is really dire. It's basically well, Jesus gives you like these three kind of really tragic modern contemporary news stories. Contemporary for him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just says, okay, you remember yeah. the Galileans, the blood, the, the tower that fell, and then um, and then this fig tree. So we have <laughs> yeah. we have these things. Now, I think what you're seeing is, is do you think that these uh, Galileans were worse sinners than others because they suffered? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise, all likewise perish. Yes, as they did. We got it. We got to talk about the current events, though. Well, talk to of, me of this. So, I mean, we don't. It's 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 unclear exactly what what Jesus is talking about. What is clear is that his audience knows. The disciples know what he means. There are all sorts of these little insurrectionist uh, insurgencies happening across Palestine, where Jews are rising up. I mean, remember what's 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 the geopolitical situation? Everybody wants to rise up against Caesar. All sorts of people, hundreds of people, are claiming to be the Christ. Because they want people to follow them to take down Caesar and to take down Rome. Because that's what the Christ was supposed to do. That's what the Old Testament was clear the Messiah was going to do, was defeat Israel's enemies. It, it, it's the nationalistic um, rebellion. It's a misunderstanding of who their enemy is. That's the, he, that's the key. Because the Old Testament is clear, God's going to free you from your enemies. And they will be destroyed. Israel, at this point, thinks their enemies are only the Romans. Which, Jesus came to tear down their true enemy, which is Satan. The Romans yes. are a pawn. They're, yes. a, they're a shadow of the real enemy. They're not the enemy. We, the we, enemy is behind them. Which is, I think, exactly what we have to get at with this word repent. Yes. When, when we're talking about what, what Jesus is trying to do, he's saying, he's saying, okay, you think that what's, what's taking place is um, you, uh, you have to have a Pelagian or yeah. a self-satisfying yeah. legal fulfillment of something. Yeah. And, and if you do that, then you're going to be able to take Rome out. So you're going to have this nationalistic yeah. legal yeah. expression that's yeah. going to defeat enemies. He yeah. says, repent, abandon that whole project. Yes. He says, abandon that project and come and follow after me. And if you don't, what's going to happen? You're going to be, uh, you're going to be destroyed. Stones are going to fall on top of you and the pagans are going to sacrifice it, and your blood's going to be mingled with their sacrifice. In the siege of Jerusalem when the final definitive moment of this battle of Jewish insurrectionists against Rome happened, how did most people die? Uh, stones falling by on them. By stones falling on them, by buildings toppling. So when Jesus says, hey, there were these people, they rose up, they had were crushed by buildings, their blood was mingled with sacrifices from Pilate, you, if you don't repent, repent from what? From your bad political affiliations, from your ideas of filling your bellies, of your political and... and uh, militaristic glory of wanting your power and your authority if you don't repent which is literally turn to metanoia shoot. metanoia to, tur to turn aside to turn aside from that you're all gonna and when he says likewise perish or perish in the same way he means you're gonna perish in the exact same way yes a building might fall on you which it did yes so you know we sometimes read Jesus's words as though, you know, it doesn't really matter where he said them. His words, you know, they could be said in 2015 at your kitchen table just as well. No, there actually is a context to this that the to understand what Jesus is really saying then makes it even more applicable to our world. If you're like, oh, wow, there really was an historical context to that stuff. Oh, I can see how that translates to my world and my life and my the things that I want to follow after that Christ might be asking me to turn aside from. Mm. And then we get to this 
weird thing about a fig tree. Fig trees show up a lot in the Gospels. And, and which is this is this is interesting because if you start to interpret this, oh my, you're. I have one interpretation. I've got one. I've got one that I've never heard before. Oh man, I and let... it's not fully fleshed out, but I'm. I, it's it's bouncing around through my head. Okay, well let me tell you mine, and then you can tell me yours. Okay, should we should we read it really quick first, or just summarize it? And he it? told this parable: A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, "Behold, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground?" And he answered him, "Let it alone, sir. This year also, till I dig about it and put on manure." And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay. So I actually can see the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay. Th- that what happens here we are. He's actually going around and he's really trying to actually get people to um to be become and bear fruit. What does bear fruit look like? It's actually making the nations known. Actually, this fruit of repentance that we just talked about is saying, yeah. "Come and follow after me. Follow after who Christ is." And, okay. but, but as a collective, yes, that that's actually the thing is as a whole. And then, and then what happens is that he dies, he digs a pit and the manure, the, like the, the, the dirty earth is mm. another way mm. to actually interpret it. Mm. And then yeah. let's see if it bears fruit and yeah. well and good. Yeah. But if not, then it's going to be cut, it's going to be cut down. And that's actually where we see the stones yeah. falling and the, 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 the um the uh, Israel raised out of the twelve apostles yes. in this new capacity. So that's absolutely that's my, that's my interpretation. Oh yeah, I, I want to hear yours now. No, I love it, and mine fits in with that. Um, the fig tree analogy, the, the fig tree image is used all all over the Old Testament. Isn't like a fi- fig as like the uh, uh, origin of the Adam and Eve? Didn't they? Didn't they Often, some think that 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 was a fig that, that they, they ate a fig and it was the fig tree that they had to cover up with the leaves of? Yeah, that's a part of it. Um, but consistently throughout the Old Testament, when you talk about a person who planted something in his vineyard or in his orchard, especially a fig tree, it's always God planting Israel. Right. That's always the imagery. And Israel is often, and I have a whole list of them somewhere in my notes, often represented by a fig tree. Mm. They are God's fig tree. Right. And what represents Israel? So if if Israel is represented by a fig tree, what represents Israel? What's their national symbol of themselves? Uh, uh, vineyard. Uh, sorry, I was unclear about that. The, something literal that represents what embodies the whole people of Israel. The temple. The temple does. That's the centerpiece of their lives, right? Mm-hmm. What is the temple? Well, the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. What are you supposed to do in the temple? You take off your shoes. You strip away your impurity, your power. Take your shoes off so you can stand before God. Mm. What is Israel not doing? Well, the leadership of Israel and a lot of everyday folks as well, they're not taking off their metaphorical shoes. They're not stripping of their power. They have instead turned the temple, the fig tree, the bush that they're supposed to be approaching, this tree, which is Israel, into a nationalistic symbol that's about their own power and about their own glory. So that tree, which is the Jerusalem, the temple, is going to be cut down. It says, I gave them three years. Jesus, for three years, ministers, proclaims this message, announces a, a message of repentance, of turning a ju- a back. A jubilee. A jubilee. They don't listen to him for three years. And at the end of the Gospels, right before Jesus goes to the cross, in every one of the Gospels, he basically says, we get the story of the fig tree again, in which Jesus goes pronounces death on a fig tree, then goes and pronounces a curse on the temple, which is always represented by a fig tree, 
because it's not bearing fruit. This tree that you were supposed to stand before like the burning bush. Basically, what I'm seeing here is this connection between the burning bush in the first reading and the temple in the gospel. The temple was supposed to be the embodiment of the burning bush. Mm. This place that represented our humility, our impoverishedness, but God's greatness and God's glory. Where we approached, where we took our shoes off, where we stripped ourselves, where we went before God in full humility. And the temple, the tree, the burning bush has become the exact opposite of that. And if that's what this new burning bush has become, then it must be cut down. And three years he gave them, three years of warning, three years of a call to repentance. It was not listened to. So what does he do? Well, if Israel is represented by a temple, who ultimately represents Israel? Jesus. Jesus. Where does he go to die? Outside. On a tree. On a tree. Hmm. There's another tree. What is that tree? It's the tree that is the the embodiment of humility of stripping away of self, of a bush that is burning but not consumed. Mm. Jesus is destroyed in a certain Mm. sense, but death is destroyed in the process. Mm. As the burning bush is this humble, meek, beat-up, burning symbol of God's greatness, so too the cross now, because that other tree, the temple itself, is going to be cut down. Mm. And we need to move aside to a new burning bush and a new temple on which, a bush, frankly, on which the new temple hangs in humility, burned alive in a certain sense, tortured, killed, thorny, and then buried in the ground, prepped to rise again, Mm. which is what we look forward to at Easter. I'm still, like I said, I'm still working out all this imagery, but I think there's something between this bush in the first reading, the temple, which is the fig tree in the gospel reading, and Jesus hanging on a tree in his humility and being burned and not fully destroyed. Mm. I think there's something to that. And I've never heard that unpacked or really talked about in that way, but I haven't either. And then, that's what's bouncing around up there. Then I see the sacred heart, like, yeah. like the the like the image of Christ's sacred heart being wrapped pierced, in thorns, wrapped in thorns, but uh, a burning, but not being consumed. Oh, burning! Yes, absolutely. And and yet, yeah. and and breached in the true uh, holy of holies, yeah. of which we're invited into eucharistically. Yeah, yeah. To be able to touch that, and I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yes. And yeah, dude, yeah. I just got to hang out with that man. That's I know. That's so, awesome. Yeah, just, with that. I don't want to say anything else to because it's just beautiful. Well, that's perfect because we're at time. Boom. So everybody, thanks for joining us today. Hopefully, we've given you some stuff to chew on for the next week or so. And we will be back next week. Find us on Facebook. Send us an email. You know, don't fake the funk. Don't fake the funk. We will be back next week. God bless you. Bye-bye.